We're saved by being born again by faith, not good works, not church membership, not trying our hardest. It comes by receiving Jesus by faith. Have you done that? Well, welcome to the Shoreline Church Podcast. My name is Pastor Pilgrim Benham, and you are listening to a new series in the book of John. Today, we open up John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, the prologue. I hope you're blessed and encouraged. Make sure you share this resource with others. God bless you. We begin in the first chapter. And last week in the book of John, we had a bird's eye view, kind of an aerial view of the entire gospel, and today we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 1. And what we're going to study today is called by many scholars the prologue, the prologue, the beginning of the book. Verses 1 through 18 are so poetic in nature that a lot of commentators believe that this was an early kind of poem or worship a kind of narrative or song or statement that the churches would recite in their gatherings as either a call to worship or a time of their service. Now, we don't have evidence of that. It's speculated. But the reason they believe that, and I don't know if it's true or not, but the reason they believe that is because they are so poetic in nature. A lot of repetition, as we just, in our time of worship and singing, we're, we're highlighting that word light. A lot of re- repetition in the Greek phrases and words. And some scholars see kind of a chiastic structure in these verses where there's parallel verses between verse 1 and 18 and 2 and 17 and 3 and 16, almost building up to the centerpiece, the hinge, two verses, which are verses 12 and verse 13. Now, in Florida, this is a little bit tricky, but has anyone here ever seen a mountain? Does anyone know what a mountain is? Okay, I know it's hard in Florida. Maybe, would you believe a sand dune? Would you go with that? A sand dune. Okay, so when you walk up a sand dune, eventually you reach that summit. I'm going to fall off the stage. And then you begin to kind of go downhill. You descend. You go up, and then you go down. And so the idea is that this verse slopes up to verses 12 and 13. You have the New King James Bible. We don't do this a lot. Let's do this together. Look at verses 12 and 13, and let's read them out loud together Here we go, verses 12 and 13. Let's read it. It says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Wow. Uh, John's gospel, as we learned last week, is all about believing in Jesus. It's all about who Jesus is. And so the point of application uh, in this passage is to believe in his name, to receive him, and to receive the right of sonship according to the will of the Father. And so as we open this incredible section of Scripture, literally, we could spend months in chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, literally months. And so we're going to. No, no, we won't. We're just going to spend today. Um, We're going to see glimpses in the prologue Uh, of the book of John just in the opening verses. Now, whenever a big movie is about to come out, uh, the people like me that are movie buffs get really geeked out about the trailers, right? So the trailers come. We're at the Super Bowl party, and the the trailer for Solo is coming out. Did you hear about it? It's coming out. And then we were all let down. It was a horrible trailer. No one wants to see it now. The trailer was an epic fail. But we're all excited. I can't wait to see the trailer. It's going to show me some of the key action figures and some of the little humorous quips 
but it's kind of a teaser to give you a glimpse of what is going to be in the movie. It's just like if you were to walk into the movie theater, out on the marquee, you'll see the different movie posters, and you'll kind of get a glimpse of like, you know, snakes on a plane. Well, what's that about, right? I don't know what that's about. Uh, and so it gives you a glimpse of what, what the movie is about. And so uh, in like manner, when you get closer to the theater, let's say the door is open, and so you're walking by with your wife, and your, your theater's at the end of the hall, and as you're walking by, you hear machine guns and explosions, and you're kind of eating your popcorn, on, uh, walking down, and you look over, and you look at the name of that theater, and it's The Notebook, and you go, oh, wait, honey, I didn't know the tanks were in the notebook, so maybe we could reconsider this. Maybe we'll watch it. Uh, it gives you kind of a glimpse. When you hear, when you see, you get kind of an idea. And so that's exactly what happens in the prologue, not explosions and tanks, but we get an idea from verses 1 through 18 what the rest of the book of John is going to look like. Both D.A. Carson and Colin Cruz, uh, as commentators, point out that the prologue introduces the main themes that are gonna appear throughout the gospel. We'll put them on the screen for you. Way too fast for you to take notes, but you can take a picture with your phone. We're gonna see uh, in this opening what we'll see later in the book. We're gonna see Jesus' pre-existence, Jesus' union with God. We're gonna see the coming of life in Jesus, the coming of light in Jesus, the conflict between that light and darkness. We're gonna see what the theme is in the book of John, which is believing in Jesus. Not just that, but there's a lot more. The rejection of Jesus. We, we already read it. Uh, we're going to see, uh, ultimately, uh, divine regeneration, the glory of Jesus, the grace and truth of God in Jesus. Uh, we're going to see Jesus and Moses or the law. We're going to see that only Jesus has seen God. And finally, we're going to see Jesus's revelation of the Father. So that's what's coming in the book. And that's what we get a glimpse of on the movie poster of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. So if you're taking note, this is going to be our outline together. So here's the outline. Um, we're going to look at verses 1 through 5, which is the word from the beginning. The word from the beginning. And then we're going to look at verses 6 through 13, and we're going to see the word believed. The word believed. And then we're going to wrap up with verses 14 through 18, the word begotten and beheld. Okay, so with that in mind as kind of our outline, let's start in verse 1 with the first of these three ideas, the word from the beginning. Look at verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, first, if you would, note in your Bibles the word, word. It should be capitalized in every Bible that you're reading from today. That is not a typo, okay? Please don't try to erase or correct that. Uh, we don't believe in the erasable Bible here at Shoreline, okay? Don't do that. Please don't call your Christian bookstore publisher and complain. Word here should be capitalized. We're not sure who this word is yet. We don't find out until verse 17. But for now, we're gonna investigate what the word word means, okay? The word, word here is the Greek word logos. Everybody say that with me, logos. Good try. Yes, we translate that word, word. And that's not incorrect, but there's so much more going on under the surface, kind of like listening to a Beatles song. There's a lot more going on under the surface. But what does the word, word mean to us in English? Right? A word is simply a unit of speech by which we express ourselves to others. Uh, when our son Aiden, he's 14, but when he was very young, 
Uh, one time he started crying. And you can gauge parents, new parents, you can gauge the level of pain by the amount of time that first breath from the injury until the first cry. Whatever that length of time that is, that's a large injury or it's a very small injury. And so our son took this deep breath and he's crying. And so we had to say this. My wife, Jen, she said, Aiden, use your words. Use your words. And it wasn't until he spoke a word that we understood, oh, he lost his teddy bear. <laughs> that's, that's what he's upset about. It was a few weeks ago. Um, <clears throat> he's not in here either. This is great. You could say that, and we'll put it on the screen, a word is simply a thought communicated. A word is a thought communicated. Now, the Greeks used this term in their philosophy. Uh, they went back all the way to Heraclitus in the 5th century BC. He believed that the world was in flux. The world is just going crazy. Here's what he said. You guys may have remembered this from college. If you stepped into a river and then removed your foot and then put it in again, it's, not gonna be the, it's never the same river twice because the water that you stepped in earlier is now downstream, and so now it's a new river. You remember that? Yeah. Any philosophy majors in here? Yeah, definitely hashtag decaf, right? And so logos to him meant the impersonal and divine and unchanging kind of power that held this chaotic world together and guided the changing process. So he would actually use this term logos interchangeably with fire, uh, with reason, with justice, and even with the term God. Uh, Plato came along and he emphasized the same kind of impersonal and unchanging logos, but he said they, this kind of kept the planets on course uh, and determined the seasons. The Stoics came along and they said, well, no, logos is the world reason and, and, and manager, semi-personal. Plato personified this idea of the Logos. Uh, he actually called uh, the Logos the high priest that set the soul of man before God or the bridge between man and God. Interesting. The tiller by which the pilot of the universe steers all things. Interesting. Now, that's how the Greeks heard the word Logos. The Hebrews heard the word Logos and they thought of something way different. Uh, they believed, the Hebrews believed in the power of the spoken word in creation the power of the spoken word from a patriarch. That's why when the blessing was given, you can't reverse it. Right, let me pull that blessing back. Wait, bless me as well. The blessing's already been given. It's been spoken. There's power in that speech. God's logos to the Hebrew was his powerful and effective action in creation, in judgment, and in deliverance. In Proverbs 8, remember, wisdom was actually personified as the first of God's creation and active throughout all of his creation. So God acts by his word or his logos. When the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, was translated and read in the synagogue, the speaker would not want to um, violate the second commandment where he misused the name of God. So when they got to the name of God, he would stop and sometimes they would insert logos in place of the name of God, the unmentionable name of God. So not only that, but to Eastern people, a word is not merely a sound, it's power which does things. I read this week about Sir George Adam Smith. He was traveling through the desert and some Muslims came to his party and as they were passing by, these Muslims said, uh, peace be upon you. But as they began speaking with them, they realized, wait, you're Christians and we just spoke a blessing to an infidel. And so they quickly begged, can we receive our blessing back from you? We don't wanna wish peace upon you. That's how important uh, words were to Eastern peoples. They have an independent, power-filled existence. So John is writing to both Jew and Greek, and both of them had this conception of what Logos 
meant. But I love what this commentator says. They say this, they should have understood that just as words are the expression of thoughts, so to call Christ the word was to regard him as the communication of the divine wisdom, the personal revelation of the truth of God. He was not just the communicator, but the communication itself. He did not merely tell God's truth, he was the truth. There's so much in this word, the logos. I like what one girl, young girl said. She said, Jesus is all that God wanted to say. I like that. S.D. Gordon said, Jesus is God spelling himself out in language that men can understand. If you're here today and you don't understand the deep things of God, you can understand God's love for you in sending his only son to be one of us. You get that. You understand that. And you can know the Father by looking upon the Son. So I want to spend some time in verse 1 and break it down into three sections uh, for just a few moments. So uh, you could do this if you want. You could circle the first phrase uh, and then the second and the third. So three phrases. First, in the beginning. In the beginning. Circle that phrase if you would. Even if it's a handout Bible, go ahead and circle it. Someone will be blessed later. In the beginning. Okay? In the beginning was what? Was the Word. Now, Mark's gospel takes us to the beginning of Jesus' ministry and his baptism. Matthew and Luke bring us back to Jesus' birth, or even right before that, the announcement uh, to Mary. Uh, But those first three words should be very familiar to us as Christians, in the beginning. We should, in our minds, reflect all the way back to the very first verse of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John goes back further than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He goes further than Moses who wrote in Genesis and says, no, we're going to go back to the existence of God. In the beginning, before creation, Jesus, the Word, existed. I like what Brian Broderson says. He says, if we were to write someone's biography, we would naturally begin with the person's birth. But for one person in history, life did not begin at birth. Jesus Christ, before being conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, pre-existed eternally with the Father. We could say it this way, Jesus is pre-existent, pre-existent. So before Jesus was born of the Virgin, he existed. One of the creeds in the church, the Nicene Creed, uh, says this, uh, listen to this, uh, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. Jesus is uncreated. And I think today we need to understand that, uh, that as it goes on, he's of the same essence as the Father and through him all things were made. Jesus wasn't made, he was pre-existent. So the, in the beginning was the word, Jesus. So circle the second phrase. It says, the word was with God. Circle that with me. The word was with God. What does that mean? It means that Jesus was equal with God. Not only is Jesus pre-existent, but he's also distinct from the Father. There's a a heresy, know your heresies, right? There's a heresy called modalism, which says that, well, for a little while, God was known as Father, and then for a little while, he's known as Son, and then sometimes he's known as Spirit, but he kind of changes his mode right? Okay, I'm a husband, I'm a dad, and uh, I'm a, a wannabe surfer, right? So those are, those, that's me, right? I'm, I'm those three things, and so, but I'm the same person. That's modalism. That's a false idea. Now, Jesus is distinct from the Father, but one with the Father. 
Jesus said in John 17 on the screen, the Lord's, the true Lord's prayer, he says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I've glorified you on the earth. I've finished the work which you've given me to do. And now, O oh, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Look at this. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. Wow. A Jesus is distinct from the Father. Yet prior to his incarnation, Jesus existed as one with the Father. Glorified, exalted, unified. We have some weird ideas lately in the church about Jesus and, and his relationship to the church. Okay, we have some really weird ideas. A lot of people think God created man because he was lonely. Right? God's just lonely and wanted companionship, like kids in the summer with a puppy or without a puppy. Like, I just need a puppy. And so God was like, I just need creation. I just miss being with people. I'm lonely. Right? So because God didn't want heaven without us, right, he created us and then sent Jesus to save us. But here's the thing. I'm pretty sure God is holy and dwells in unapproachable light. So you can't stand in the presence of God as a sinner and live. He's that holy. And so I kind of think he did want heaven without us because if he wanted us in heaven, in our current state, we would just evaporate and be annihilated. So I kind of think like he loves us so much that he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins so that in the coming ages, he could show us the, the inexpressible, incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That's how much he loves us. But it really is important to make the point here that God is completely independent of his creation. God didn't need to create us to fill some void of happiness or satisfaction. I just need more friends. Like, let me just, let me just make people, make creation. I need, I'm lonely. I need people. Uh, the Trinity, no, was already experiencing complete oneness and fellowship before the beginning of creation. And you and I don't add that missing piece. Jesus was with God from the beginning, preexistent and distinct. But notice the third phrase, circle it. The word was God. The word was God. Not only is Jesus preexistent, Jesus is self-existent, not created. From the very first verse of John, we understand who is Jesus. He's fully God. Uh, he's co-equal with the Father. He's divine. Listen, this morning, you need to know this. Jesus is not one of those little g gods, right? He is God. And this would have been staggering to the Jews of John's day reading this, who would strongly believe and defend monotheism, the belief in one God. And when John says the word was God, he's not referring to like there's the Father and then there's Jesus and these are two gods, okay? But one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, uh, cults have tried to add a little indefinite article to this verse, especially the Jehovah's Witnesses. They have added um, a word here. And so this is what they would say in their embarrassing translation, the New World Translation, which is a hot mess. I'd call it a Greek nightmare, all right? Verse one of chapter one, their translation says, the word was a God. The word was a God. If you ever talk to a Jehovah's Witness and they say that, just ask them, oh, cool. Was he a true God or a false God? And they'll go, uh, I gotta call somebody. I don't know, gotta go. And then turn your sprinklers on. No, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Just kidding. Don't do that. They would translate this incorrectly. And the reason is they misquote a Greek scholar, Julius Manti. Uh, he actually called Watchtower and put out this notice and said, please take my name off of your 
listing. I, you're misquoting me. And so he finally came out and said, look, there's an indefinite article, A, only before participles, but not nouns. You gotta fix this, okay? The bigger problem is that if you have a God, the word was a God, and not the God, then you don't have one God. You have several gods, which means none of them is truly God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. Self-existent, pre-existent, distinct, and divine. Now, some of you are looking at your clock and you're going, oh boy, we're in verse one, and he's gone way long. Okay, so let's move a little faster. Look at verses two and three. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. So before anything existed, Jesus existed. He was the agency through which all things came into existence. Uh, note those two words in verse three. Note them, all things, all things were made through him. All things, angels, Jupiter, the star we call Betelgeuse, which is my favorite star. Uh, the mimic octopus, look that up later. Your poodle, the fleas that are bothering your poodle, all right? Uh, the nitrogen cycle, the left atrium, Every single one of us here this morning in our mother's womb, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that was made. Someone says, yeah, well, well, nowadays we can make plastic. Okay, great. Where'd you get those elements from? Where'd you get the elements to make plastic from? I'm pretty sure you didn't create atoms from nothing. Those came from him, right? Ultimately, Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the word for God is El. And yet in Genesis 1.1 and all throughout Genesis, the idea is Elohim, the plural, a concept of God. Paul told the church in Corinth uh, this on the screen, 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Yet for us, there's one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Notice those prepositions. From God and for God and through Jesus. It's from and for the Father, through Jesus, by the work of the Holy Spirit, the Trinity active in creation. Colossians 1.16 on the screen, the speaking of Jesus says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, even that, that, that smaller authority, that greater authority, all things were created through him and for him. Uh, Hebrews 1, the writer of Hebrews says this, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Uh, Jesus, it says in verse 2, was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Now, the atheist will look at the world and will see random events, chance, and processes. But when we look at design, design and order implies intelligence, right? And we can't look at the universe and just think it just happened to happen, like the Big Bang, all these elements just sneezed, and here we are today. Uh, in 2018. Sir Isaac Newton actually invited an atheist friend over to his home, and the man was invited to see um, in his home a small-scale model of our solar system made and crafted out of wood. And the man, the atheist, was impressed 
at how intricately painted and designed this model was to accurately resemble the actual solar system. And so he turned to Newton and he said, this is remarkable, who made this? And Newton said, no one. It just appeared out of thin air. I don't know what happened, it just appeared. And the man said, I'm no fool, who's the designer? And then Newton replied this, he said, this thing is but a puny imitation of a grander system and I'm not able to convince you that this mere toy is without a designer and maker. See, design implies a designer. Who's that designer? The Lord Jesus Christ. All creation exists by him and for him. But look, it gets deeper than that. Look at verse four. In him, we read it earlier, was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus is the logos, Jesus is life, and Jesus is light. Now, note with me, that John the Apostle does not say Jesus was a light or a life, a way to do life. Jesus is the life and the light. What do we think about when we think about light? We'll get into this later in John, but just briefly today, since not everyone may be here uh, throughout the year as we study John and get to John chapter 8, but light, we'll put it on the screen, reveals some things. Light reveals sin and darkness. Light reveals truth and light represents holiness. Okay, light, first of all, reveals sin and darkness. So in the middle of the night, the other night, we're sleeping, we hear this glass smash. It's two in the morning. I get the elbow in the ribs. Honey, there's a guy breaking in, right? I jump up, completely in REM sleep, right? And so I'm, you know, I'm fighting zombies in my sleep. So I'm jumping up, I'm running through the house, I'm looking at every window, and apparently a raccoon that's been pesky in our neighborhood knocked over uh, one of our little decor lanterns that doesn't actually use as a lantern, but it looks nice. And so knocks this lantern off and shatters on the ground. And so I flip the light on and I, and I try to expose the darkness and find out what's happening. Um, you've done that. In the middle of the night, you flip the light on and there's Rocky the roach crawling across the counter, right, trying to get into the cookies. And you're like, whoa, you know, and then, then your wife screams, right? Now, this is what Jesus said in John chapter three, verses 19 through 21. He's, this is the verdict, light has come into the world but men loved darkness instead of light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Listen, people who are walking in sin hate the light because their sin is exposed. If you're here this morning, you're walking in darkness the darkness of sin, you need to come into the light. You need to confess your sin, repent. Stop hiding in the dark. You think you like the dark, but one day you'll be in utter darkness, unable to see a thing where you'll hear weeping and gnashing of teeth, where you will experience weeping and gnashing of teeth. That eternity set apart from God is called hell. And today you can receive Jesus, the light, and come out of darkness into wonderful light with a group of people who are peculiar, who have also been called out of darkness into wonderful light. Jesus is the light of men. But notice verse six. I wanna look at our second big idea here, and we'll move a lot faster now. Look at verse six. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. That's not the writer, that's a different John. John the Baptist or the baptizer. This man came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all through him might believe. He was not that light, but it was sent to bear witness of that light. And that was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world, okay? 
Now, we studied John the Baptist or the baptizer in our Malachi series, so go back and listen to that if you missed it on our website or our podcast. If you don't know where to search for our podcast, it is on iTunes, and you can search for Calvary Shoreline. We have uh, an awesome podcast that God is using to encourage and equip the church. So if you're taking note this morning, three things we need to know about John from these verses. Jot these down. First of all, number one, um, John was sent from God. John was sent from God. He was a forerunner in the spirit of Elijah to announce the coming of the Christ. Uh, He didn't come up with this idea on his own. Like, I got a good idea. My cousin, let me talk about him. No. Uh, Likewise, we'll see through the book of John with Jesus, he was sent. He was a sent one. We'll see that throughout the book of John. Secondly, John came to bear witness, right? He's just pointing people to the light. Hey, there's light. I want you to know this light. Testifying. Like a faithful witness in court, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You're not to change that message, alter that message, try to make that message more palatable. You just speak it. Be faithful to speak it. And John certainly was. The third thing we need to know about John is that he was not the light. John himself was not the light. He wasn't there to distract or draw attention to himself, but to constantly point people to Jesus. Isn't that the ministry of the Holy Spirit? to point and exalt the person and work of Christ, to draw our attention back to Jesus. That's what our job is to do. We're sent from God to our community. You and I are here just to simply bear witness. We're not the light. Jesus did say, I'm the light of the world, you're the light of the world. We're kind of more like the moon, right? The moon is a reflector of the light. The moon without the sun is just a floating rock out in space, right, revolving around the planet. But Because of the sun, it reflects the light. And that's who you and I are. So look at verse 10. It says, he was in the world. This is Jesus. The world was made through him. The world did not know him. And then it's sad, verse 11. It's a little bit sad. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Now, when John is speaking this passage, he came to his own. He's speaking about the Jews. Right out of the gate, we learn ahead of time in our story that we're about to study that the Jews are not going to receive Jesus. Though he's the logos, he's the life, he's the light, he created the world, that world did not know him. His own people did not receive him. But look at the great news of verses 12 and 13, the centerpiece, as we mentioned earlier, of this prologue. But as many as received him, and there are many, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Even though he came to his own, they didn't receive him. Those who did receive him are now a part of the family. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, in case you didn't know this, this is how we become children of God, okay? We're born again by faith in Christ, okay? It's not about blood. You don't come to faith because there's blood involved. Oh, my parents came to faith, so now I'm good. Like, my parents are Christian, so I'm good to go. If you're a student here today and you're kind of resting in the shadow and the coattails of mom and dad, no, you need to place your own faith in Jesus, right? Not only that, but it's not of the will of the flesh. So you don't have the power in your own flesh to produce new birth. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna bear myself. I'm gonna be born again by my own strength. No, it's not, you don't have that ability. Nor, it says, is it the will of man? It's not of the will, man, as a preacher, there are times that, man, I really want to will people into the kingdom. I want to. I want to be like, right now, bro, like receive Jesus, right? But listen, salvation comes from God, not persuasive preaching or apologetics 
Some of you are trying to like, if I just had that good argument, then I'll share my faith. I don't want to look like, I don't want to look dumb. I don't want to get beat up. I don't want to share something and not have an answer. No, you need to be faithful. It's not by the will of man. It's by the will of God. And so we're saved by being born again by faith, not good works, not church membership, not trying our hardest. It comes by receiving Jesus by faith. Have you done that? Have you trusted your life to Christ yet? See, the word must be believed, but it also, thirdly, must be begotten and beheld. Look at verse 14. It says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Would you circle that phrase, the word became flesh? The Logos became flesh, dwelt among us. This is what we call the doctrine of the incarnation. Any Spanish speakers here today? Muy bien? No? Any Spanish speakers? So, incarnation, right? Incarne, right? Means carne. I've been to taco places. I'm like, they're like, what would you like? Carne. I want some of that meat. Right? Give me some meat. Just means meat. So, in the meat, incarne, Jesus came in the meat. He came in the flesh. He came in bodily form. Later in John's epistle, he says, we handle them. We could feel his body. Right? No doubt there were times that we prayed together. John would say, I leaned against his chest. Right? Jesus came in the flesh. What, is that, what are the implications of that, though? Jesus left the comforts and glory of heaven and entered humanity, born in a human body, divine meeting the earthly. Not only that, but Jesus, the word made flesh, he was born into a country, Israel. He was born into a culture, the Jews, a race of people with customs. Traditions, holidays, celebrations, norms, belief systems, social mores, etiquette. He was even born into a family within a social network, lower class subculture, family that had relatives and ancestry and standards. And he came and he wore the clothes that the people wore. He ate the food that they ate. He participated in the traditions they believed in. Some of us think like Jesus is kind of a ghost. He wore a white robe and kind of floated around. And then like, where's Jesus? And he's like, bing, here I am. Right? No, he slept. He ate. He got fatigued. He got tired. He wept. He became one of us. This is not God masquerading as a man. This is Jesus, a fullness of God dwelling bodily. Athanasius of Alexandria in his work on the incarnation says this. He says, the Lord did not come to make a display. He came to heal and to teach suffering men. For one who wanted to make a display, the thing would have been just to appear and dazzle the beholders. But for him who came to heal and to teach, the way was not merely to dwell here, but to put himself at the disposal of those who needed him and to be manifested according as they could bear it, not vitiating the value of the divine appearing by exceeding their capacity to receive it. Jesus came to minister. He came in the flesh. The word became a man. Does that fascinate you? That's just fascinating. It's incredible. And now, the writer of Hebrews picks up on something that David wrote in Psalm 40. This is absolutely amazing. Look on the screen. Hebrews chapter 10. The writer says, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then he quotes Psalm 40. This is what David said. Sacrifices and offerings you've not desired, but a body you've prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, this is Christ, behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Huh, in the scroll 
of the book, in the scroll of the Old Testament. You know the story of the road to Emmaus after Jesus had risen some of his disciples were walking to Emmaus and they're talking about everything that had just happened, just transpired in his uh, death and resurrection. And Jesus appears to them, but they don't know it's him. Remember that story? It's found in Luke chapter 24. And you can read it later. But he kind of asks them, hey, what's going on? And they're like, do you not have MSNBC? Do you not know what's happening? Like some crazy things have happened. Don't you, don't you Google this stuff? And so they tell Jesus, listen, this is all the stuff that happened. And Jesus then says, basically, you're foolish. You don't get anything. And, and then Luke 24 tells us what he said to them. He says, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Man, if there's a verse that ever describes me, I think verse 25, I'm just foolish. I am slow of heart to believe all that the word says. And then he says, did not the Christ have to suffer these things? and then enter his glory, and I love verse 27, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Wow, man, I wish I was there for that Bible study. Wouldn't that have been amazing? Jesus may have taken them back to Genesis, where an animal had to be slain to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. Remember, they tried to cover their nakedness in itchy fig leaves, which we all do. We try to cover our sin. Uh, but God kills an animal and covers it and says, and I bet Jesus said, There's, there I am, there's me. And no doubt taking them to the fall when God says to Satan, I'm gonna place enmity between you, your seed, and the woman's seed. Uh, you're gonna strike the heel of the offspring, but he's gonna crush your head. Uh, Jesus maybe read that and said, there I am. Uh, you know, on the cross, a minor injury to the Messiah compared with the head injury of the serpent. I've noticed in the hospital, they don't have heel trauma units, but they have head trauma units, right? This was a head trauma to Satan, but a minor heel injury to Jesus. Maybe Jesus on that road took them through the life of Joseph, maybe the burning bush of Moses, the water that came out of the rock, the manna in the wilderness, the root of Jesse, the suffering servant in Isaiah, the ancient of days in Ezekiel or Daniel, the fourth man there in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, the son of man in Ezekiel, the three days and nights in the belly of the fish of Jonah. And all through the Old Testament, Jesus says, there I am, there I am, there I am. Jesus is the word made flesh. He's the logos. If we were to take the word and put it in human form, it's Jesus. Jesus came and dwelt among us. Look at verse 14 again. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The idea here is literally tabernacle. He tabernacled among us. Remember Israel's wandering in the desert, in the wilderness, and they set up the tabernacle. The idea is they pitched a tent, and God's presence was manifested there. God made his tent among us in Christ. David Gusick points this out. I like this, that the tabernacle is many things Jesus is, and we don't have it on the screen, but I like this. Uh, The tabernacle represents who Jesus is to his people, the center of Israel, the place where the law was preserved, the dwelling place of God, the place of revelation, the place where sacrifices are made in the center of all worship. Spurgeon said this, if God has come to dwell among men by the word made flesh, let us pitch our tents around this central tabernacle. Do not let us live as if God were a long way off. John says, we beheld him. We saw him. John was a witness, but we were witnesses as well. Look at verse 15. 
John bore witness of him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. Now, usually chronology means superiority. How many of you here are the oldest in your family? I'm the oldest uh, of my siblings. All right, so there's, I mean, usually, you know, it means superiority. So, you know, we're among good company. (laughs) Not always. The oldest one in the scriptures usually received the double birthright. But the one who came first is usually a priority. John acknowledges, hey, Jesus may have come after me, but he's actually more important than me because he's preferred. He preceded me. He existed. Though I was born before him, he was existent far before I came into creation. Look at verse 16. Of his fullness, we've all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We need to amen that. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth emanated from Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to judge the world, but to fulfill the law and to save those who were unworthy. Okay? He came with truth, right? Obeying the law, keeping it to the letter, but he came with grace, extending the benefits of his righteousness to those who would believe. Now, Jesus did not just come to save his friends. He came to die for his enemies. Let me say that again. Jesus didn't come to just save his friends. He came to die for his enemies. One person calls grace heaven's best for earth's worst. John Owen said this, let all vain imaginations cease. There's nothing left under the sons of men but either to reject the divine person of Christ as many do under their own destruction, or humbly to adore the mystery of infinite wisdom and grace therein. And it will require a condescending charity to judge that those who those do really believe the incarnation of the Son of God who live not in the admiration of it as the most adorable effect of divine wisdom. This truth is amazing, and we should embrace the reality that God loved us and sent his Son to be one of us. Now before we close, look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God at any time, but the only begotten son who's in the bosom of the father, he has declared him. Another translation says, he has made him known. Here John points out that no one has seen God, God who is invisible, though has been revealed, he's been explained, he's been declared by Jesus. The word declared is where we get our English word exegete or explain. When I exegete a passage, It means I take the text and I attempt to lead out or to draw out the meaning. I'm so glad we were an exegetical preaching church and not a topical preaching church. What that means is I don't just pick a topic like, we're going to talk about faith today. We're going to talk about joy today. We're going to talk about my kids today. And we just talk about topics. No, exegesis or exegetical preaching means we take the text and we draw out what it says and we point to Jesus. We point to Christ. And so notice what is happening in verse 18. He's saying that Jesus has done that with the Father. He's revealed, he's led out and explained the Father. He's exegeted the Father. Later on in this gospel, Philip is gonna say, hey, Jesus, just show us the Father. That's enough for us, just just show him. Can we see him? And Jesus says, have I been with you so long, Philip? And you haven't seen the Father? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is here to declare the work of the Father. As we close, I'm going to invite the band forward, and I have a few simple questions for us, so I invite you guys up to close us in song. 
And I have a few questions for us. Go ahead and close your Bibles for me. Get settled. Zip them up. Put those pens away. A couple questions for us this morning. As we open this book, it's going to be awesome, right? I'm excited. First question I have for you is, do you know the Father? Do you know his son, Jesus? Have you received him by faith? In the early 1800s, the president wanted to issue a full pardon to George Wilson, who was sentenced to be hanged. The pardon was given, but Wilson, to whom the pardon was given, refused the pardon. How do you legally refuse a presidential pardon? The Supreme Court Justice John Marshall declared this, the value of the pardon depends upon its acceptance. If it's refused, it's no pardon. George Wilson must hang, and Wilson was hanged. Listen, to pardon your sin, Christ shed his blood on the cross. The price was paid. But each individual, we must receive his forgiveness. As John verse 12 of chapter one says, you must receive it. Have you received it yet? And many of us are rejecting the love displayed for us through Christ's incarnation, his death, his burial, his resurrection. We keep rejecting him because we think, we believe, oh, this is gonna harm me. God wants to harm me. I don't wanna receive Jesus because there's harm involved. It reminds me of a village in Wales named after the hound of Llewellyn the Great. It's a crazy story. One day returning to his castle, Llewellyn the Great found his child lying, uh, or dead rather, his child was dead. And there was his hound lying next to him. And Llewellyn at once pulled his sword out and plunged it into the animal only to discover too late that a huge wolf was the one that had attacked his child, but the faithful hound had slain the wolf to protect the child. And in his blind rage, Llewellyn had killed the faithful friend. This morning, maybe in your blind rage today, because of a hurt, because of some past situation, you reject Jesus, not understanding that he's paid the price to save you. And you reject the very hand that could save. You reject the very one who died on the cross for your sin to pay your penalty. And one day you'll stand before a holy God and you'll not be able to say, oh, I didn't want to believe you. I, I, I was hurt as a child. I was neglected. Religion was kind of a turnoff to me. You're not going to be able to say that. You'll stand before a holy God and you'll have nothing to utter except I'm guilty. And this morning I want you to know that you can receive Jesus. He loves you. He gave his life for you to pay for your sin. And I'll give you an opportunity before the service concludes to receive Jesus in just a moment. We have a pastor's challenge for the rest of us this morning who have received Jesus, who have gone from death to life, who are born again and saved and redeemed, being sanctified. My pastor's challenge comes out of verse 16. I want you to meditate on this verse this week. Verse 16 says, of his fullness we've all received and grace for grace. Listen, we've received grace for salvation, but we've also received grace for our relationship today, okay? We can go to the Lord and we need to go to the Lord to be replenished over and over and over as we grow in our walk with Jesus. Is that you here this morning? You need to grow and receive more grace today. Will you bow your head with me? Do you need grace for your marriage? You're thinking, yeah, Lord, my husband needs to change. 
Maybe you've forgotten that your, even your spouse was created by Jesus. You keep trying to change him rather than calling out to the one who made him and knows him best. You need grace for your marriage today. Do you need grace for your finances? You say, no, everything's in flux. Well, the Logos, the one who created and sustained the universe by his word can bring order and chaos. Do you need grace in your grieving? Listen, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us is still dwelling among us today by the power of his present Holy Spirit. You're not alone. He's with you, he's for you. Do you need grace in your grieving? Do you need grace to run your race and slay your sin? Grace to fight that good fight? Well, the one who brought grace and truth and fulfilled the law perfectly stands ready to intercede on your behalf. Stop striving today and start believing. Brother, do you need grace to bear witness of Jesus to your world? Like John the Baptist, we can affirm, hey, he's preferred. He's greater than me. And we can tell others they can die and be born again by faith. But man, do you need grace for that? Grace to be a witness? I wanna challenge you this week to come to the Lord Jesus and receive grace for grace. Maybe this morning while our heads are bowed, you just pray that prayer, Lord, I need your grace today. Thank you, Lord, that you're the word. You dwell among us, you reveal the Father. Now, Lord, strengthen me today by your grace to live for you, to bear witness to others. Is that you? You wanna pray that prayer today for grace? Would you raise your hand so I can pray alongside you? Lots of people needing grace today. Keep your hands up. Anyone else? You're right, extending that hand, Lord, Lord, I need that grace today. I need to receive it. There's grace for grace. You put your hands down. I want to pray for you. Father, thank you for your grace-filled love to send your only begotten son to bear our sin, to be one of us, to trade heaven for earth, to put on humanity, to suffer be rejected, to be abandoned, to be betrayed, to be crucified, scourged, mocked, beaten, put to death for me, for us. There's grace in our faith today, grace to believe, but there's grace as you sit at the right hand of the Father and intercede for us. There's grace for today. There's grace for all that we need. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning acknowledging it's not by works, it's not by our effort. We're not gonna be incredible prayer warriors that then are worthy of receiving it. Grace is to those who are undeserving. And we've raised our hands today saying, I'm undeserving, but I need it. And so Lord, would you fill us with your grace and mercy and kindness. Strengthen your church. And for those who don't yet know Jesus, make today the day of salvation for those who have not yet believed. Turn them from death to life. We love you, Lord, and we worship you. And we rely upon you. We thank you that Lord, in Christ alone, our hope is found. We turn our attention back to the risen Savior this morning. It's in his name alone we pray. God's people said, amen. Let's worship the Lord together. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more details by visiting our website, thisisshoreline.com. God bless you, and remember, it's all about Jesus. Jesus.